This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. The following program may contain explicit language. It's Monday, July 6th, 2020. From Slate at the Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump gave a pair of speeches over the July 4th holiday, and maybe you saw them or heard coverage of them. Maybe you actually took them in, in whole or part. A firecracker of fury right to the face. I listened to the speeches. I read the transcript. It is my job, people. I do it for you. And there was the usual lies, bluster, the inaccuracies, the stupid ideas that hinge on a small but physically tangible gesture in the face of a massive, complex, sometimes conceptual problem. Let me give you two examples from the past. Immigration was the problem. That is economic, cultural, political, humanitarian complexities. Solution, wall. Wall's a solution. I can see a wall. Wall to work. Or COVID. That's a problem. Extremely hard to get your mind around what it even means. Solution? Ships. Very large ships. Maybe their names could be the comfort and the mercy. They offer no actual comfort, but they are tangible, and we could see them steaming out of a harbor. So the problem of criminal justice rears its head, and the people's anger occasionally takes the form of toppling monuments to traitors, to enslavers, but, and also, and to past American leaders. But Trump has a simple solution, a tangible solution. It is a garden, a garden of statues. I have no idea if his garden will ever flourish. If he's defeated in 119 days, I would guess it won't, but he says it will. And he also says it will be done democratically. Those great names are going to be up there and they're never coming down. They have just been an incredible, group, and we are going to do this in a very democratic way, frankly. You know he's sincere because of the last word he just used in that clip, frankly. Sometimes he says frankly, and he means it. Like in Tulsa, when he talked about this one very prominent challenge to all of us, the American people. And I look down on my tie, because I've done it. I've taken water, and it spills down into your tie. It doesn't look good for a long time. And frankly, the tie is never the same. So there. There is an instance of Trump's using the word frankly, and it should be taken at face value. Of course, when frankly is used to describe him operating in a democratic fashion, I become a little more suspicious. But there was another word in play. It was actually in the very clip that I played from the July 4th speech that I think defined the pair of speeches that he gave over the weekend. He said it in the Black Hills. George Washington. He will never be removed, abolished, and most of all, he will never be forgotten. And he said it also of Jefferson. And he too will never 
ever be abandoned by us. And Lincoln, and of the fourth figure glaring behind him. The American people will never relinquish the bold, beautiful, and untamed spirit of Theodore Roosevelt. Never. These speeches are what I think of as the never speeches. Promising to defend, to never allow that which is already being allowed, to never succumb to what's already in existence. Trump is now running a never campaign. In those two speeches, Trump said never, promised to never allow or never forget, 28 times. The producers put together this abbreviated cut. This monument will never be desecrated. These heroes will never be defaced. Their legacy will never, ever be destroyed. Their achievements will never be forgotten. We will never abolish our police or our great Second Amendment, which gives us the right to keep and bear arms. We will never let them rip America's heroes from our monuments or from our hearts. And we will never surrender the spirit and the courage and the cause of July 4th, 1776. Americans must never lose sight of this miraculous story. We should never lose sight of it. Because we will never forget that the American freedom exists for American greatness. And that's what we have, American greatness. We will never allow an angry mob to tear down our statues, erase our history, indoctrinate our children, or trample on our freedoms. And we never back down, we never give in, and we never give up, and we will never yield defense of our nation. Donald Trump's grasp on the country and the presidency is slipping away. He's reduced to fighting against change, promising not to make anyone's life better or to achieve what any sane person would say is a vision of America. All he can promise and not even do is to fight to hold on to that which his own mismanagement and incompetence has shaken loose. I have a feeling that a lot of Americans have their own never as relates to voting for Trump. Never again. On the show today, we brainstorm a new name for the Washington football squadron. Ant-Man's baked goods play a role. But first, last week, the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones wrote an essay about what is owed to American black citizens. She cited Duke professor William Darity, his plan for reparations. It's detailed in his new book, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. Now, what Hannah Jones wrote about this was, quote, reparations are not about punishing white Americans and white Americans are not the ones who would pay for them. She says, quote, it is the federal government that pays. I didn't quite understand how this would work. So I read the book and got in touch with the professor and present without too much editorialization, though a little, our conversation right now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. The discussion over reparations for the legacy of slavery and more recent racist policies like Jim Crow and redlining, that discussion is gaining new cultural currency, leading the way with a plan to address the practicalities is William Darity. William Darity, along with Kirsten Mullen, is the author of From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. Professor Darity is the Samuel Dubois Cook Distinguished Professor of Public Policy at Duke University. He is the man to talk to about this. Thanks for coming on, Professor Darity. Thank you for having me. There's just so much to get into historically, and in your book, it spends a long time making the case about the necessity for some sort of reparations. And I don't want to, as they say in Seinfeld, yada, 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 the history of atrocity, but it's not what I want to spend this interview with. But I do want to say it's not just slavery. It's not just Jim Crow and redlining. I could name dozens, if not hundreds of massacres from Tulsa to Colfax to Memphis to New Orleans, thousands of examples of lynching, black people denied equal opportunity, denied basic liberty that is redounded to their economic punishment. And this all can be quantified. And you use the racial wealth gap as a means of quantification. Before I move on to the implications of all this, anything that you want to say about the why, why the necessity of reparations? The necessity of reparations is associated with the huge differences in opportunity and well-being that are associated with the black-white wealth gap. It's actually astonishing what the magnitude is of the differences in the quality of life and the options that are available to black Americans on average versus white Americans as a consequence of the entire cumulative intergenerational effects of racial economic inequality in the United States. Yeah, and intergenerational people should know that so much of opportunity is, I guess, what an economist would call in vivo gifts. Not just, I think maybe people think, oh, a house and then a person dies, deeds their house to you where most Americans hold their wealth. That is more available to white Americans and also home appreciation uh, works better for white Americans. But you're just talking about little gifts throughout a lifetime to make college affordable or to give a car to get to jobs or for a down payment for the house. That sort of thing comes into play all the time. Yeah, and I think it's not just the size of the gift, it's the timing of the gift that's really critical. And to the extent that your parents or grandparents have more resources to assist you in the process of building your own wealth position, the more advantaged you are. And there's a huge racial difference in that kind of opportunity as a consequence of the differences in net worth across black and white households, which amount to, in 2016, amounted to approximately $800,000 on average per black and white household. Let us get to who would benefit from your plan. Would it be only the descendants of slaves? Would it be black people, African Americans who do not descend from slaves? Uh, Maybe they have Ghanaian or Barbadian or Nigerian ancestors. What's your answer? So my answer is that black reparations in the United States coming from the United States government, where the United States government is the culpable party, should be for black American descendants of United States slavery, living descendants of United States slavery. So this would mean that it would encompass approximately 90% of the current American black population. 
And what do we say to someone who maybe very much experiences racism, even very much experienced uh, redlining, depending on how long they were in this country or had a relative? Well, it would be probably rare for a Ghanaian with only Ghanaian ancestors to have experienced Jim Crow. But what do we say to such a person who is black, who the racists don't know, or our society with systemic racism doesn't make the fine grain differences about who to discriminate against? What's the message to those people who would wouldn't benefit who are black. So there's no question that uh, our nation's police do not try to determine whether or not you are, are from Guinea or from Nigeria or from Jamaica or uh, a native black American in making their judgment about how to execute violence against you. So I absolutely agree that there's an issue there. But I think that these forms of ongoing discrimination are different from a decision and an act to compensate for the cumulative effects of racial injustice in the United States. And it is only the community whose history is anchored in the failure to provide the 40-acre land grants at the end of the Civil War that should be eligible for this particular type of reparations program. But I just am wondering if the plan comes to pass what do you think that would actually mean for the 10% of the black population who would not get to benefit in its plans? They would benefit from their own historical experiences globally. If you think about it very carefully, there are very few black immigrants who came to the United States in the interval between the end of slavery and the 1960s. I think if you if you were looking at the size of the black population and the composition of the black population up until that point, it's only about 1% of the population. And many of those folks had intermarried with persons who were descendants of folks who were enslaved in the United States. So their respective children, grandchildren would be completely eligible for reparations under this program. So what we're really talking about is the 10% of the existing Black American population that came after, largely after the passage of the Civil Rights Acts of the 1960s. And these folks are hyper-selected in comparison with the communities or nations that they came from. What I mean by that is that they're more highly educated, they're more affluent than the average folks in their nations of origin. And in addition, they're actually, on average, more highly educated than all Americans taken together. So this is a relatively advantaged population that is not penalized by the same kind of historical processes that have affected Black Americans. They are penalized by ongoing racism in the United States. But if you voluntarily migrate to a racist country, you certainly should fight to change those conditions, but you should not be compensated for the existence of that racism. What is the level of compensation you're laying out? Well, the level of compensation involves eliminating the racial wealth gap. And so that would require uh, an expenditure in the vicinity of at least 10 to $12 trillion, depending on you know, the range of atrocities that you, you dictate as, as requiring compensation. Total Medicare spending is... 750 billion now. The New York Times did a analysis where they asked a bunch of different people how much would Medicare for all, essentially the the dream of universal health care cost and the highest estimate was less than 4 trillion. So again, you're talking about four times that. 
Uh, yeah, I am talking about four times that, but you know, in the context of our book, we also suggest that this is something that could be done over the course of a decade, which would reduce the annual expenditure that's required. But I don't think that there's any constraint on federal spending aside from the potential inflation risk that might take place. There's nothing that constrains the federal government to wait until taxes are collected to proceed to engage in additional expenditure. The only danger is depreciation of the currency. And if we could design the reparations program like any other expenditure program in such a way that we minimize the inflation risk, then there's nothing to worry about. I don't want to use labels, but this is essentially the modern monetary theory, MMT idea of if you are the currency of the world, you could essentially print money and watch out for inflation and find a way to fund any variety of projects that you choose to. Is, yeah, is that about I, I, I won't talk that. about I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite, quite sympathetic to that, that, that perspective. Okay. So M- MMT really suggests that the premise that underlies the way in which we have thought about fiscal policy for ages, uh, a scarcity principle, is not really applicable. The really serious issue, as I said, is whether or not your expenditure causes you, your currency to lose value. And that's what you have to be cautious about. And that's the kind of procedures that you have to build into the new expenditure to minimize the effects of. One way in which we've proposed that this could be done with respect to reparations is to provide people with endowments or trust accounts rather than outright cash payments. Since one of the objectives, uh, one of the central objectives is to erase the racial wealth gap, then you could increase people's asset positions by using or providing them with less liquid assets. And that would minimize the volume of annual expenditure that would be associated with a reparations program. But it would, at the same time, build people's wealth positions so they would be in a better position over the course of the remainder of their lifetime and have the capacity to make requests to subsequent generations. I don't see any limit on the capacity of the federal government to spend on a wide range of options other than making sure that precautions are taken to prevent an inflationary outbreak. Um, It's somewhere in the vicinity of $250,000 to $350,000 per person. Absent the MMT funding idea, do you think we should still pursue it using tax dollars? Yes, if we could directly transfer wealth taxes from the super rich into the fund for reparations. We would have to construct a wealth tax, not rely exclusively upon an income tax. And so the wealth tax uh, would be enough to do it. You, I think you I think it might be, particularly if you did it by spreading the process of of eliminating the racial wealth gap over over multiple years, say a decade. Yeah. So there's now let's talk about how popular this program would be or needs to be. Um First, how popular do you think it will get? Uh, the last polling I saw, which was a couple years ago, and things change very quickly, showed that the majority of African Americans support reparations. 15% of white people support reparations. Will that have to change significantly to make this a political reality? Well, certainly, uh, you know, insofar as, as uh, from, from the perspective that we offer in our book, From Here to Equality, this is something that would have to be done by congressional legislation, not by judicial fiat. And so, of course, it would require there to be significant popular support for this to take place. Uh, I will say this, if you look at the polling in the year 2000, 
4% of white Americans were in favor of reparations for black Americans. Uh, you pointed to a statistic from about uh, two or three years ago where it was about 15%. I think current polling suggests it's in the vicinity of 20%. Uh, still low, but certainly quite different from 4%. And I have the impression that current circumstances in terms of people's recognition of the ferocity of anti-Black police violence uh, may actually improve the prospects for more and more people to support reparations. But yeah, that's that's a key issue, is the struggle for the hearts and minds of Americans uh, to ensure that folks say that this is the right thing to do. Right. Although I would posit that the appalling sight of George Floyd being murdered would inspire one set of feelings that might not extend all the way to, and therefore we should give every black descendant of slave a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, no, that's that's correct. Not everybody will have that sentiment. But I think that it has opened the door for people to consider the effects of American racism in ways that they have not been thinking about before. I think it's relatively remarkable that people are now saying that they believe that there is this thing that we call systemic racism, rather than treating racism as, as purely a matter of interpersonal interaction. So, for example, if we're thinking about anti-Black police violence, that's not going to be stopped by a, a reparations program that eliminates the racial wealth gap. It would be stopped by a set of policies that were directed at the police force, including demilitarization, including eliminating qualified immunity and the like. Reparations alone is not everything that needs to be done, but it would be such a dramatic change for this society to be one in which black Americans in general have a high degree of economic security and the potential to pursue the kinds of interests and desires that they have in a fulfilling way. William Darity, along with A. Kristen Mullen, is the author of From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. Thank you so much for your time and erudition. Thank you. Thank you for having me. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com you're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. And now the spiel. The Washington football team is strongly considering a name change from the current one of the Washington, well, I can't say it, to a different one, a less inherently offensive one than... Again, Slate's editorial standards do not allow me to even utter the name of the Washington football team. So I was going to offer my advice on alternatives, but it will be hard to do an entire segment where I keep saying the Washington football team or Washington's old name. I feel like I'm going to have to say something akin to the name. I will acknowledge it is not a good name. It is not a right name. It is not a forward thinking name. It is not a non-offensive name, but it is the actual name. 
I, as a reporter, have always thought that our job was to describe the world as it is, not as we'd like it to be. My editors disagree. I've been having this discussion with them over this very word, in fact, for, I'd say, over a decade. Fine, it's fine. Different opinions. They're the bosses. I get it. However, just in terms of communication, I'm going to need a placeholder name so I don't have to say the very clunky Washington insert team name here. Online, you could do it with asterisks, Voldemorting a team's name. So maybe I should mention this fact. The actor Paul Rudd, I don't know if you know this, he owns a sweet shop where they have candy and baked goods. I can prove that this is true and that this is not a joke. Yes, this is not a joke. I am co-owner of a candy store called Samuel's Sweet Shop in Rhinebeck, New York. Okay, so this candy shop sells baked goods, including scones, I would assume. Dan Snyder, the Washington team owner, seems to have a softness for baked goods and a softness in general. So he, it turns out, bought some of the scones purveyed by Paul Rudd and brought them back to D.C., where they became the Washington Rudd scones. So the question at hand is, should the Rudd scones wish to change their name? I, for one, I support them in this endeavor. It's funny, I will say this, and I will admit this to you. A couple shows ago, I was articulating my criteria for changing names or songs or statues or traditions. And I said to you, it hinged on a belief that mine is not the only sensibility to take into account. And when I said that, I actually thought of the Rudscones, or their actual namesake, because surveys show that actual Native Americans are not offended. Though the surveys were conducted a few years ago, not in these times of heightened sensitivity, and the survey methods have been critiqued, I did a deep dive on the surveys. They seem to be perfectly valid surveys, and many indigenous people actually have no truck with the team name, the Rudscones. I know this. However, while I do take into account the feelings of the offended party, I don't automatically defer to the stated indifference of much of the said offended party in opinion surveys. Because many indigenous people are offended, and it seems quite logical that they should be offended. Having the name out there, furthermore, isn't neutral. I think it, in a way, denigrates and debases whatever experiment we're engaged in, in terms of seeing people as they actually are, humans, not as a collection of inaccurate phenotypes. So what I'm saying is, let's change the Rudscones. Question. What now to dub the former Rudscones? So I've seen the suggestion of the Washington Monuments, the Washington Red Tails, Red Wolves, and the Hogs. The Hogs was the nickname of the Rudscones' famous offensive line from the 1980s. Fun, inflationary offensive line fact. The average weight of the Hogs from 1982-83 was 273 pounds. The offensive line of last year's Rudscones did not include a single player who weighed less than 312 pounds. That's how big offensive lines have gotten. But all those names I mentioned, I think I like the Hogs the best. They're fine. They're just fine. I do believe we can do better. But we have to think of this categorically. So in category one are clever plays on the nature of Washington. I put clever in quotes. And then I throw it in a river, the quotes weighing it down, and I hope it sinks to the bottom. So you hear the Washington swamps and the Washington gridlock. Yeah, yeah, we get it. Hilarious. Because whenever you come up with one of these names, I find it's very tied to the moment right now. This is from a 2013 Washington Post contest to rename the team. Some of them unfit for air, many of them politically inspired the mudslingers, Washington pork, the lobbyists, the fiscal cliff mountaineers. The fiscal cliff mountaineers. Oh, that was the epitome of Washington dysfunction, wasn't it? The trading gap 
the Washington teapot dome, the Washington warm bucket of spit. We get it, Mark Russell. We get it, Capital Steps. We get it. No name in this category shall be considered by me. The category is hereby rendered defunct. Okay, category two, actual Washington-inspired appellation that is celebratory. The Washington Americans, the Washington senators, the Washington presidents. <sighs> boring. But you know what? Washington is boring. Want to know one Washington institution that's not boring? Go-go music. But the Washington go-go's? I'd say no-no. Category three, something historical. Hanging over the Washington Rudscones' misadventure in team names is the fact that neighboring team, the Baltimore Ravens, have such a great name that is named and inspired by a cool favorite son, Edgar Allan Poe. There is no equivalent Washington, D.C. person of letters. A book that I saw on literary D.C. has on its cover Langston Hughes and Walt Whitman, who are very clearly associated with Harlem and Brooklyn, respectively, much more than Washington, D.C. A Wikipedia list of Washington authors includes Jonah Goldberg and Jeffrey Goldberg, while the Washington Goldbergs would be a nod to the center-right and center-left, would be thrilling to about eight of us. I just can't see it working in practical terms. I'd love a bizarre political nickname from the past applied to the current team. The Washington Doughfaces, the Washington Copperheads, the Washington Mugwumps. But all those factions were on the wrong side of history to one degree or another. The Mugwumps actually did get it mostly right, better than the half-breeds and the stalwarts. But Mugwump is a bastardization of an Algonquin name, not exactly a clear break from the past. In fact, naming a team after a bastardization of the Algonquin doesn't really do much to advance from the Rudscone's name itself. Category four, a generic name that doesn't really have any reason or connection to Washington behind it. Now, the number one sports team nickname in the database of high school and college mascots, a site I pound like a day trader refreshes Google, is Bulldog. Yet there are no Bulldogs among major professional North American team sports. Bulldog is boring. Bulldog is something like a compromise solution, which is actually what Washington should be aspiring to. So there's something going for it. Perhaps a bit more inspired is the Washington Wildcats. Wildcats is the third most popular sports team name across all sports in the U.S., but it is also underrepresented on the national level. By the way, Eagles is the second most popular team name. There is an NFL team, the Eagles. They actually beat Washington, the Rudscones, in their last six meetings. Eagles get to keep their name. Rudscones don't get to appropriate it. So let's consider Washington Wildcats. Just consider it. It's alliterative. It sounds okay. Doesn't have much to do with Washington. Washington's not that wild. It's a fairly buttoned down town. Then again, the current reported favorite name, the Washington Warriors, is very much in the category of Washington Wildcats. It's bland, but it's workable. So where does that leave us? I have eliminated all but a couple of middle-of-the-road compromise choices. We can't stay with the current name. The Rudscones have long gone stale. So I have a crazy proposal. Hear me out now. The Washington Rudscones, right? You know, they don't even play in Washington. They play in Landover, Maryland. The team's training facilities aren't in Washington. They're in Richmond, Virginia. So they don't just maybe have to change their nickname. They get to change their geographic name. So why not do what the Brooklyn Nets did and glom onto a more up-and-coming, happening part of the city? One with a little more distinctive feature. Not the Foggy Bottom Frogs or the Georgetown Soirees. I mean Anacostia. Ever hear of Anacostia? It's also the name of one of the rivers. That's not the Potomac right along D.C. 
And a lot of Washington Rudscone fans live in Anacostia, but these fans are usually priced out of actually attending Rudscone games. Lucky them, three hours of traffic for a 3-13 and 13 team. So how about we go for a complete teardown of the institution that was the Washington Rudscones and suggest they just reinvent themselves as the Anacostia Anacondas. Anacondas are great, and there's a built-in theme song. My Anaconda don't want none unless you got buns, hun. Nicki Minaj sampled it, Dan Snyder can too. The Anacostia Anacondas solves almost all the problems with racism inherent in the name. Has a few other problems with sexism, but I think Nicki Minaj reclaimed it, right? I know Dan Snyder is not a daring, creative, open-minded, or with-it guy. He probably won't even consider adopting the moniker the Anacostia Anacondas. But why not try it, I ask? Go hog wild if you're not wild about the hogs. At least we do seem to be veering away from the most racially insensitive name in sports. So hell to the Rudscones and let's wrap our minds, if not ourselves, around the Anacondas as we fight for or over old D.C. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They fear getting rickrolled by the president, not for the usual reasons, but just they don't want to have to contemplate the possibility that Donald Trump is never going to make you cry, never going to say goodbye, never going to tell a lie and hurt you. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. She will quite frankly tell you that while stains on a silk tie do not come out, the greater risk is not water, frankly, it is that your extra long tie winds up in your soup. Might want to think about that, quite frankly. The gist, you know, nuclear reactors have fuel rods and to assess them, they need x-ray or scanning. It's actually a big challenge. Papers have been written on this. You need advanced equipment. Some of this equipment is in the Department of Energy out of Washington, DC. These Washington rod scans are very controversial and a lot of people would like to discontinue the practice of the Washington rod scans. Oom-poo-de-poo-do-poo, and thanks for listening.